Good morning. Happy first Sunday of Advent. The uh, text that we're going to be considering this morning is a shorter one than we normally do. It's Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. I'd encourage you to turn there, even if you're at home, run to your bedroom, grab your Bible if you don't have it already, and uh, get into Matthew chapter 11. The doctrine that we are going to be considering this morning is this. Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. Doctrine is a word that we don't say very often here, though we teach it consistently, I hope. And doctrine is the reality that there are things we need to know, things we need to believe that are true and are for our benefit, our health. Doctrine. That doctrine again this morning is Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. As Bill, as Bill mentioned earlier, this is the first Sunday of Advent, and Advent comes from the Latin word adventus, which means coming, or from the Greek, root, Greek word parousia. It points, obviously, to what we will celebrate on December 25th, the birth of Christ, the incarnation, but it also points forward to the second coming of Christ, um, to whom all of us who long for that day look forward to seeing him come back. This series, however, is exploring the gift of Jesus' heart towards us. So, in a way, we're kind of in this beautiful biblical tension. God came, and God will come again, and we're right here. Dietrich Bronhofer said this, the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. Again, we believe that He has come. We believe that He is coming again. But who is He for us today? For those of us who are perhaps troubled in soul, for those of us who see themselves as poor and imperfect. This morning we hear Jesus answer, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Please pray with me. Oh Jesus, I thank you that we can pray to you this morning and that you are praying for us, interceding on our behalf before the Father, even right now. And Lord, I pray that you would, through the work of your Spirit, make this doctrine effective with an A. Make it something that, that stirs our affections to love you more greatly, Lord Jesus, this morning. I pray that you would give me a temperament, a tone this morning that would preach with gentleness, and with lowliness, for that is your heart. May you be glorified. Amen. Well, hopefully you've gotten to the end of Matthew chapter 11 by now. Let's jump right to verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Stop. Because this is such a short passage, I would like for you to consider... What does it mean to really consider a passage? To 
be able to think through the questions that are asked, the issues that are presented. I want you to be able to think through when you have lunch today or dinner tonight, what were the things that that passage pointed us to? And so hopefully this morning, if I remember, I'll be repeating a few key items that we find right here in the first three clauses here. An invitation, an instruction, and a promise. The invitation of come to me. The instruction of take my yoke and learn from me. And the promise of rest. But here's the thing. Those three things, invitation, instruction, and promise, they were also religious offers made by the Pharisee and the scribes of Jesus' time. Overplayed religious realities within their creedal culture. Rabbis invited young disciples to come to them. Come, walk in the way of wisdom with me. They instructed them by coming to submit to them as the rabbi, as the scribe, as the Pharisee, to submit to their teaching and to learn from them. In fact, it was commonly said of of all Israelites, of true Israelites, that they walked under the yoke of the law and of the kingdom. Interesting language. Let me take a pause real quick there just to explain to you this yoke language. What they would be thinking of would be yoke for oxen. I did not have a yoke at home, so I didn't bring it this morning. But a yoke would be a large piece of wood with two holes in it. And you would have two oxen standing next to one another, and the yoke would be put on top of them. There would be two pins that went down and a leather strap right underneath here. So in effect, their head was locked into the yoke. And these two beasts of burden would walk together and work together. So these rabbis said, Come, take my yoke upon you, the yoke of the law and of the kingdom. And they would also promise that religious rest would come to the true Israelite through Sabbath observance. Again, nothing really set apart the Israelites like their adherence to the Sabbath. And so for those who sought to be incredibly elite Israelites, the teachers, the disciples of those teachers, Sabbath observance was critical. Well, as our own life experiences tell us, people at home, the goodness of invitations, instructions, and promises are largely dependent upon the heart of the inviter, the instructor, the promiser. And we see that in Matthew as well. In Matthew 23, listen to Jesus exposing the Pharisees and the scribes. He says this, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. And they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. He goes on and speaks directly to these scribes and Pharisees and says to them, Woe to you, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of God in people's faces. 
For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte or a follower of yours, you make him twice as much a hell, twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Exposed the hearts of the Pharisees and the scribes and their exposed hearts reveal that their invitation, their instruction, their promise did not actually yield anything like the kingdom of heaven or like righteousness. Their promises did not come about. So this is what sets Jesus apart so clearly the contrast being so, so real. Again, verse 28 of chapter 11, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The fact that Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart totally reorients, corrects the invitation, the instruction, and the promise around himself. To which I ask the question, do we really know Jesus? I mean, do we really know Jesus? Maybe the gentle and lowliness of Jesus shocks you to a certain extent. C.S. Lewis writes this, Gentle Jesus, my elbow. The most striking thing about our Lord is the union of great ferocity with extreme tenderness. Add to this that he is a supreme ironist, dialectician, and occasionally humorist. So go on, you are on the right track now getting to the real man behind all the plaster dolls that we have been substituted, that have been substituted for him. Would you consider for a few minutes, are there some plaster dolls of Jesus that you take to be him and they are not actually him? Perhaps you think on the weak Jesus, sweet baby Jesus, the one who Yes, came as a baby at Christmas time, and that's kind of where he stays, in the manger. Or perhaps the genteel Jesus, polite, definitely too pure for you, unaware of what you actually walk in every day. Perhaps your plastic doll is generic Jesus, he's up for discussion. Everybody kind of has their own take on who Jesus is, and that's okay. He's generic. Or maybe you think of Judge Jesus. Absolute, supreme, powerful. And so then you throw in other adjectives like rigid. Well, for most of us, I would say that we may think of those things sometimes, but Maybe we think on more of good news Jesus, the one who came 
born, lived, died, resurrected. And so we think on what he has done, but then our minds go to absentee Jesus. Yes, I know what he has done, but what has he done for me lately? Would the real Jesus please stand up? And Jesus said, oh, absolutely. I am gentle and I am lowly in heart. This is how Jesus describes his own heart, the very core of his being. His passion emanates from his gentleness and lowliness. This is his own self-description, how the Word made flesh chose to use words inspired by the Spirit to describe himself. He could have used any other words, but he used these two words, gentle and lowly in heart. He couldn't change himself if he tried. Not that he would want to. C.S. Lewis continues, This is the appearance in human form of the God who made the tiger and the lamb, the avalanche and the rose. He'll frighten and puzzle you, but the real Christ can be loved and admired as the plaster doll can't. So to truly know Jesus, to have a doctrine that brings us spiritual health, we must understand his gentle and lowly heart. So what does Jesus mean? What do we mean when we talk about gentle Jesus? Well, gentle, the Greek word for it, praus, is only used a few times in the New Testament, but most markedly it's used in Matthew chapter 5 at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus himself says, the meek shall inherit the earth. So you could retranslate that blessed or happy are the gentle. The gentle will inherit the earth. Is gentleness niceness? Is gentleness weakness? You may say, yes, that's what I think of when I think of gentle. Think again. No, it is not. The Greek word for gentleness, again, praos, was used by the Greeks to describe a person of authority who refused to use his power to crush another. He refused to use his power to crush another. This was power under control for the sake of someone else. In fact, if you think about it, we only actually talk about, well, maybe not only because we might misuse the word, but, you know, sometimes we have to let the Bible reorient the words that we actually use today in a way that helps us live more biblically. And I would say that that is the case here. Consider the fact that meekness and gentleness are rightly used only in arenas of power. Here's an arena of power. When you bring a new baby home and there's a toddler waiting to meet his new brother or sister, and that toddler approaches, and the parents are like, be gentle. That toddler could do anything with that innocent, weak baby. Be gentle. We talk about a gentle man. Are you a gentleman? Well, gentleman is someone who is understood to have influence, is understood to have some degree of power. Yet, 
He is aware of others who are around him. That is a true gentleman. When you watch football, you often hear of gentle giants, the guys down in the trenches who are like six foot nine, 340 pounds, battling each other. Yet you hear stories of what they do off the field to help their communities or to love their wives and kids, and they're called gentle giants. So to understand Jesus' gentleness, we must understand his power first. And this is really interesting because Jesus actually says this about himself after a long illustration of his authority. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of chapter 7, the people respond to this sermon of all sermons by saying, he doesn't teach like the teachers do. He teaches with authority. His authority is spoken. Chapters 8 and 9, his authority is shown as he heals the sick. He calms the storm. He calls the tax collector, Matthew, and he follows him. And he casts out demons. His authority is spoken. His authority is shown. In chapter 10, he actually sends with authority as he sends the apostles out to the cities of Israel to take, to take the gospel to them, healing and teaching. And he tells them, though I am giving you my authority, you will be rejected. And the rejection of my authority will bring judgment upon the heads of those people. Authority spoken, authority shown, authority sent, and then authority of the Son, specifically the Son of God. Look at chapter 11, verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So you have this long illustration of Jesus' authority. There's no doubt about it. He is the one in charge. He is the all-powerful one. And we must understand that. Judgment is in His hands. All power is in His hands. And once we get that, then we can understand the beauty of His power under control. His gentleness. Look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things 
from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The Father has given Jesus all authority. And then Jesus graciously reveals the Father to whom he chooses. And he makes a point of saying, not to the wise and understanding, those who are wise and understanding in their own eyes. He reveals himself to those who are figuratively children, those who are low, those who are humble, those who are trusting. Hear from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 10 and 11. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Authority, might, judgment. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with excuse me, that are with young. What a picture. God full of authority, full of gentleness. God perfect in power and perfect in power under control. Might be helpful to pause here for a minute. Have you been impacted by gentle people? Maybe you need to think of your own illustration right now for someone who was gentle to you. They use their power to bless you rather than crush you. Maybe you need to think about the biggest mess that you've ever gotten into. And maybe that's where you might find a gentle person who did not treat you as your mess deserved, but with mercy. I remember Mr. Cook he was, ended up being my eighth grade teacher at St. Philip. But in sixth grade, I didn't really know him other than being the leader of wall camp, which was a week-long outdoors camp that we went to as sixth graders. And um, you're staying all night with other six, all week, like four nights straight with other sixth graders. And as sixth grade boys are prone to do, we made a lot of farting noises one night. Nobody would go to sleep. It had been made clear to us that once lights out, we're supposed to be out. There should be no more talking, definitely no more fake farts, and that we should go to sleep. Well, me, who admittedly I had not been in trouble very much during elementary school, I just got in with the wrong tooting crowd, if you know what I mean. And we just kept going and going and going. And Mr. Cook barged into the room. Now, I need to explain who he was. Mr. Cook was about six foot three, and he was built like a tank. He was one of those people that just had a large head, but not in a way that was funny, in a way that was um, proportional to his body. And the beautiful thing was, 
Mr. Cook laughed and smiled a whole lot more than he frowned. He was, he was the most admired teacher at St. Philip. The thing was, I didn't really know him like that yet. I only knew him as big, strong, authoritative Mr. Cook. So when he barged into that room, I was scared. He said, we'll talk about this tomorrow. Well, guess who didn't sleep very well that night? And the next day, there had been something that was promised for us, and he said that night that we might miss out on what was promised for us because we had deliberately defied his authority. We had not obeyed. I think he could see the effect that his authority was having on us because that afternoon, he called the group of us boys together, and he said, let's talk about last night, what went on, and what was really going on to which we understood we had not obeyed him. It wasn't just about making noise. We, we had defied him. And he said, boys, I forgive you. And I want you to be part of all that we're doing for the rest of today. That was gentleness. He could have sent us home. Yet instead he forgave us and invited us in to what our class would do that day. Maybe you've had a parent or a teacher, a friend, a brother or sister in Christ that have been gentle with you. They have some point of influence where they were intentionally working for your good when they could have used their influence for evil. And when, when we encounter people like this, they are silhouettes of our gentle God. Silhouettes that we see fully in Jesus Christ. So what does gentle Jesus offer to us today, those who are tired of soul, who see themselves as poor and imperfect? Well, he has a gentle invitation to come to him. Again, verse 28, come to me, come to me, come to me. Jesus has the power to coerce, but instead, he opens his arm and says, I'm safe to move towards. Being near me will be good for you. There's nothing hidden up my sleeve. No secret that I'm holding out on. I am gentle and I'm lowly. You can trust my heart. You can trust my presence. You can be near me. I am inviting you to come near me. And so we intentionally hear. We consider him. And if the Spirit is drawing us, we come to him. Why do we hesitate? Why do we hesitate? Perhaps because there are very few people in this world that we actually fully trust in such a way that we could be able to say, well, maybe they're gentle, but I don't know if they're like heart level, core, passionate level gentle. Or you've been scarred or manipulated by others in such a way that to trust Jesus is a big step. Hear what he says in chapter 12. The prophet Isaiah says this about Jesus. He is a, 
a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench. You've, you've seen, especially during the fall, you've seen plants that are on their way to being dead, or at least to going dormant for the winter, and they're, they're losing their strength. Jesus says, if you're a bruised reed, I will not break you off. I will not replace you. I will not cancel you. I will come to you, and I will strengthen you. If you're a smoldering wick, maybe losing its fire, he's not going to blow you out. Instead, he's going to guard you, keep you from the winds, and allow you to reemerge again. This is Jesus' gentle heart. But can I tell you this? His gentleness is only experienced by those who come to him. If you remain intentionally distant from the one who says, come, you will not actually experience his gentleness. Sometimes we sing a song by City of Light here called Jesus, Strong and Kind. A couple verses go like this. Jesus said that if I fear, I should come to him. No one else can be my shield. I should come to him. For the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus. Jesus, strong and kind. He offers a gentle invitation to come to him. He also offers a gentle instruction to submit to him and learn from him. Again, here comes this imagery of the yoke. Come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Again, he's saying to those who are independent and willful, I, I want to do my own thing. No, come to me. Coming to me means that you will take my yoke upon you. There's no coming to me without also accepting me. Submission to me is the most beautiful place you could be. It is the most gentle and the easiest place you can be. So draw near. Why do we hesitate at this? Because we think, I have to get rid of my burdens to come to Jesus. That's what everybody else around me thinks. You're too much trouble. You're too scarred. You're too hurting. I can't handle one more conversation with you about this. And Jesus says, no. All who are labor, all who labor and are heavy laden, come to me. Bring your sin and your guilt. In fact, it is your burden of guilt, your weariness that qualifies you to come. Horatio Boner says this, it is with our sins that we go to God. For we have nothing else to go that we can call our own. Jesus knows this. That's why he tells us to come and to come with our burdens. We're burdened by our sin and our guilt. We're burdened by the law. We try to keep it. We try to be better people. And perhaps, if we're honest about it, anybody that we have influence over, we tend to be Pharisees and scribes and heap up more burdens upon them that we know ourselves we can't even keep. 
And Jesus says, bring those burdens. Bring the burden of your law-keeping. Bring the burden of your guilt to me. Bring the burden of our own great expectations, who you think you should be. Today there's this insidious cultural mantra of do better, be better. No. Don't do better. Don't be better. Come to Jesus. He's the only one that can relieve you of that load. So draw near, longing with rest for our souls, willing to trust him in faith. He has the authority to shame us, but he teaches us instead. And he says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And we think easy. You could also translate that good, fitting, best. When we come to Jesus, he knows just the right fit for us. He will not give us more burden than we can bear. In fact, he has borne all of our burdens. He does not expect any less than the rabbis. Let me just tell you that. He made that clear in the Sermon on the Mount, saying, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And then he went on to, in his sermon by saying, you have heard it said, but I say, upping the ante of a holy life. But Jesus, he won the hand. <laughs> he took all the chips and he said, now you belong to me. The burden is not for you to win anymore. I have won. Come up under my victorious yoke. You know, this, this may help us understand a bit more about what Jesus says two different times in Matthew, both in chapter 10, verse 38, and also in chapter 16, 24, where he invites his disciples, and not invites, he, he tells them they must take up their cross and follow him. There may not be another verse in my years of, of being a Christian and being a, a pastor that has been more dwelt over by people that I counsel. What does it mean to die daily to myself? How do I pick up my cross? And so people get stuck in this understanding that Christianity is so hard because there's this first order that I have to accomplish. I have to pick up my cross. What? But I don't think it's any mistake that Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Jesus is saying, listen, I already took your yoke at the cross. So by you taking up your cross, it is coming under with me and walking in new life with me. Yes, that is a death to yourself, but it is a way that I will guide you and lead you in. It's not a giving over of your life to the worst that the world can muster, taking up your cross and following him, but a trusting surrender to learn true life with him. Also, this might be helpful too, to, to understand that when Jesus is saying here, learn from me, he's using the same verb, methete, that forms the noun, disciple. So Jesus is inviting them here to be discipled by him, to be his disciples, to be Christ learners. 
But isn't it instructive here that if Jesus is here for the first time since calling them to follow him, he's saying, learn from me? What is the first thing that he's saying about himself? Ah, I'm gentle and I'm lowly in heart. Brother and sister, we need to consider a couple of things. One, is Jesus working out a gentle and lowly heart in us? That very well seems to be his first lesson to them. I've given you all authority through the gospel from me. Are you using that power in a gentle and lowly way to serve others? Also, I think we need to consider, too, as we look around and seek out others to listen to. Bill mentioned this in a sermon a few weeks ago from 1 Corinthians. Who do we listen to? I would say beware of those who are not exhibiting gentleness and lowliness as leaders. If they have not learned to lead from a place of gentleness and lowliness, you might not want to be led by them. He is gentle and lowly, and he invites us under the authority of his yoke to the abused, to the traumatized, to the scarred, the marginalized. Hear this. The answer for your healing is not to throw off authority. It's not to somehow escape from Jesus. To throw off the yoke of authority, but to come under the gentle and lowly authority of Jesus. Life may have already laid you low, and if you self-identify with those categories, abused, traumatized, scarred, marginalized, then to a certain extent, at least you understand that life seems to have laid you low. Well, then understand that the lowly Jesus is right down there with you, and he's saying, take my yoke. Let me lead you. Let me give you rest and heal you. This is a yoke of kindness, like a life preserver. You, don't, you shouldn't have to convince a guy that's drowning in the ocean to take on the yoke of the life preserver. It, it buoys him. It saves him. This is Jesus' yoke of kindness for those who come to him. Sarah read from Isaiah chapter 9 earlier, and it struck me this week as I was reading it, the reality of shoulders. Mr. Cook, he had broad shoulders, all right? Jesus has broad shoulders. In the shoulders of Isaiah chapter 9, it talks about how Jesus bore the yoke of our oppression, and it was broken. He bore it at the cross, and he broke it at the resurrection. Not so that we can walk yoke-free, but so that he can invite us to walk with him under his yoke. Later on in Isaiah 9, it talks about him bearing the authority. The government is on his, again, his shoulders. All authority, all government that will never end is upon him. So the beautiful thing is here, when we come up underneath Jesus, we are coming up underneath the one who rules everything. 
Yet, unlike any other king or president any of us has ever known, he has come down low to be with us. Ultimate power, ultimate lowliness. So again, you might be out there, you might think, I need to know this Jesus. I have a a burden of sin that I cannot bear. You might agree with Jeremiah 9, 5. It says, they weary themselves to commit iniquity. Or Isaiah 1, 4, ah, sinful nation, a people laden, burdened with iniquity. You might agree with Cain in the early parts of Genesis when he says, my sin is too great for me to bear. And the Holy Spirit is working in you and saying, come to Jesus. He promises rest in a way you've been looking for but have never found. Would you even today say, yes, Jesus, I trust that your cross bore my burden and your resurrection gave me freedom to walk with you and to learn from you. I I want to be yours. So there's a gentle invitation, gentle instruction, a gentle promise of rest from him. Again, he says, I will give you rest. And then at the end of 29, you will find rest. Again, this beautiful provision of God and also our human responsibility to seek rest in Christ. This is true Sabbath rest, true Sabbath rest that comes after good work being finished. Jesus accomplished the best work. Jesus, he got the job done at the cross. Everything from then on out for those who come to him is rest. It's Sabbath rest. It is day seven from the cross into forever. This is good. So he says to the restless the restless soul, you will find true rest in me. So as we picture ourselves as beasts of burden, we lean into Christ and we learn from Christ. We, we don't even necessarily worry that we're going to wander off onto our own paths because when we are consistently saying, yes, Lord, take me as you will. I come to you. I desire to learn from you. He will gently purposefully, with a yoke, gather you in and lead you in the path that you should go. O come, O come, Emmanuel, refer to that that we sung earlier. Look it up later on. He leads us in the path where we should go. The, The path of ultimate wisdom is Jesus. Yet why do we hesitate I'm going to ask this to the, to the Christians. Why do we hesitate to find rest in Jesus? You might say, I'm so tired, and I've been tired for a long time. Yes, I trust that Jesus died for me and rose again for me, but I just can't shake this tiredness. 
Where is the rest that he offers? What do you define as rest? And what do you define as work? Andy Crouch, he wrote The TechWise Family and a few other books. He, he goes to, to great pains to, to help give some understanding to the reality of rest and then what we often define as rest but is not truly rest, leisure. He says, rest is the glad and satisfied contemplation that comes at the end of good work. I'll repeat that. The glad and satisfied contemplation, again, this is what God did on day seven. He contemplated and saw that all was good. The glad and satisfied contemplation that comes at the end of good work. It is soul restoring. Leisure, on the other hand, is inactivity. Ideally pleasurable that is disconnected from embodiment and relationship and usually depends on another's work or toil for your enjoyment. It's too often soul-sapping instead of soul-restoring, but it's so easy. It's right here. And so we give our moments and our hours and our days to leisure, thinking, this will restore me. I, I need some rest. I just need to Netflix and chill. Let me be clear. Andy Crouch and Pastor Andy are not saying never look for leisure, never, but understand that leisure isn't going to restore your soul. Resting in Jesus is going to restore your soul. Some of you take walks with Jesus. I know that. You go out and you enjoy his creation and walk with him. You may say, does that mean that that's like, this is the only way I can actually find rest is either to walk with Jesus or to spend deliberate times in prayer or the word? No, not necessarily. Those, though those are great places to start. Rest comes from enjoying what God has actually created. It might mean investing in a friendship that you haven't before. It might mean playing football with the kids instead of just watching football with the kids. It might mean instead of watching that movie, it might mean making a movie. <laughs> or thinking of how the Lord might use that hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes to use your influence, which time is influential, to serve someone else. Again, think of this. If we are under the yoke with Jesus... A yoke is meant for work. A yoke is meant for accomplishment, for tilling soil, for creating. Leisure takes on others' creations. Rest creates. 
By God's grace, all of us are made so differently. There are different ways for us to create and rest in that. I would encourage you to consider, do I spend more time with leisure or do I seek Jesus and rest with him? Work with him in order to rest with him. See, it might be that you're saying, I'm so tired because you've just been taking a steady drip of leisure and there's really been no rest in your life at all. You've been pulling against the yoke rather than agreeing with the yoke. Psalm 23 says of Jesus, He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. So He gives us a gentle invitation, a gentle instruction, a gentle promise. But really, all of these things are not worth the paper they're printed on unless they are confirmed by a gentle person. They're all wrapped up, in fact, in the person of Jesus. Come to me. Learn from me. Find rest of soul in me. He makes all the difference. I hope this morning that me using that name for him, Gentle Jesus, helps us to see that we actually don't need that adjective. He is gentle. When we think of Jesus, we should think of gentleness. For all of us who call ourselves ones of Christ, Christ learners, we should think of Jesus as gentle. Again, with open arms and not a pointed finger. He has taken all of our punishment. He has taken all of our yoke, broken it, to then give us himself. And this gentle person, our gentle Jesus, is also lowly. He gives us assurance of what we will find when we trust him, that his yoke is good for us and it is light. He is for the low because he himself is the lowly. For the resistant to his invitation, for the doubter of his promise, for the willful and ignorant, yes, even for the restless, he is lowly, thrust downward, taking the form of a servant and accessible. There's no place that you need to go to get to Jesus. He says, come, I am right here, ready to welcome you. Are you looking for some application to this? Hopefully there's been a little bit, a little bit already, but I've been dwelling on this quite a bit this week. And yeah, we could talk about a lot of things. How do we, how do we rest in Jesus? Da, 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 da. Can I just say this? Jesus has got it. So often we come to Jesus with a plan. I'm going to rest in you by do, 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 do. No, Jesus says, simply come to me. He has the plan. Are we living with a functional, a functional dismissal of Jesus? If I could give you one point of application, this week when things are feeling low or feeling burdensome, would the first person that you cry out to be Jesus himself? 
Jesus, I come to you. I don't know what to do, but I come to you. Teach me your ways. I just want to learn from you and feel your strength next to me. Chris Renzema in a song called How to Be Yours has been something that a lot of, in our family, we've been, my kids have been singing it quite a bit recently, but I think he beautifully gets to the heart of who we are as Christians who have a hard time grasping the person of gentle Jesus. He sings this, you say that you love me, don't say that you love me, because I don't know how to be yours. You say that you want me, don't say that you want me, because I don't know how to be yours. I still act like an orphan, I guess, and my hard heart breaks to confess. Then even while you hold me as I cry on the floor, I still don't know how to be yours. To which Jesus replies, love me or hate me, I'm not going anywhere. Leave me or take me, you still bear my signature. Know me or not, seen or forgot, I'm not walking out on you. Love me or hate me, I'm not going anywhere. Leave me or take me, you still bear my signature. Know me or not, seen or forgot, I'm not walking out on you. So love me or hate me, I'm not going anywhere. Leave me or take me, you still bear my signature. Know me or not, seen or forgot, I'm not walking out on you. No, I'm not walking out on you. I'm not walking out on you. Jesus, we need to know you in this way. We need your spirit to prompt us to call out to you. We are yours, but so often we don't know how to be. By your grace, please continue to call us to come. Please stir us to agree with your yoke and to learn from you. And would you grant us rest as we do? Oh Lord, we are a, a, a troubled people. Our flesh fights us. The world attacks us. And we're just straight up stubborn. Oh Lord, our gentle and lowly one, you have come down Call us, take us, teach us, and love us. In your name, Jesus. Amen.